So, um, so the lecture series this year is sponsored by um, several groups. So there's Jose Andres' Think Food group, who have been supportive of this venture from the very beginning, as has Ferran Adria's Alicia Foundation. Um, both Jose and Ferran will be here later in the um, semester, as you will see. So Whole Foods at River Street has continued to be a stalwart sponsor of this lecture series and indeed this entire endeavor. They um, continue to donate um, food both to the class and to the to, the, um, to, the, to what you're going to see today, and we really are very grateful to this. You should all go shop there, please. Um, um, so Zertoli Olive Oil Company um, is a Spanish olive oil company that um, is funding the travel expenses of the Spanish chefs. And finally, the Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences sort of backstops the whole thing, and without them, um, this entire adventure would never have been possible, either to begin or to continue. So, okay, so I guess I want to start with what has now become my favorite quotation. Um, so um, this is a quotation from um, Briat Savaran, who um, wrote this wonderful book called The Physiology of Taste um, that was published in Paris in 1826. That is, I think, the first, Harold can correct, but I think it's the first effort to, um, to really connect science and cooking in a serious way. It's a wonderful book. You can get it for free online. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. Just go read it. It's fabulous. Um, it's not all correct, but no book is. So, you know, um, so that's fine. But anyway, he has aphorism. Um, this aphorism comes after one that's particularly colorful, which I'm happy to tell anyone after the thing. Um, but this one is, the discovery of a new dish confers more happiness on humanity than the discovery of a new star. And I guess I, th this sort of resonates with me for the following reason, um, that you know, Harvard University and indeed the universities of the world have long supported um, the discovery of stars. I mean, what can be more noble than to, to understand the stars? You know, whenever a new star is discovered, it's on the front page of the New York Times. And we all wake up and say, hallelujah, there's a new star. But what about dishes? I mean, dishes are important too. I mean, dishes, if you discover a new dish, then it might actually affect you in your everyday life. And the fact of the matter is, is we understand dishes, um, you know, both, you know, how to discover them and um, how they actually work much less than we even understand stars. I think that's a fair statement. Although if there are any astronomers in the room who'd like to take issue with that, that would be a fun thing to do. And so anyway, this captures the essence of the, of the thing. So, um, so I guess I, I have this picture which came from the first year, from the first class, Oh, that went too fast, which I, I think just to remind us where we all began. So Harold was there, and also Jose and Ferron, and everyone has had fun. And, um, and now I'm just going to very quickly go through the, the set of topics that we're doing um, in, this, in this lecture series. So these resonate with the class, and indeed these slides were taken from today's class lecture um, in which we introduce what's going to happen to the students. So, um, so today you're going to hear from Harold McGee and Dave Arnold, um, who are going to, to set the tone. Um, so next week, the topic, the scientific topic, is energy, temperature, and heat. And we will be joined by um, both Joan and Jordi Roca um, from El Salar de Con Roca. Um, the, the scientific topic will be calorimetry. Um, the um, lab, which the students will do, um, is to make ricotta cheese. Um, the, um, the next week, um, we, have, um, we are very fortunate to have back Bill Yossi's, who's the White House pastry chef, who's going to talk about phase transitions this year, a new topic for him. And Bill promises to talk about phase transitions in sugar, honey, and all of the amazing things that you can do with it. So the recipe of the week in the class is ice cream. Ice cream actually is a wonderful thing because, in fact, that's one phase transition that is making the ice cream that is controlled by changing the, the, the freezing point of water. Here's a picture of Bill. 
for those of you who remember him. Um, oh, I'm not going to show you that. That's some ice cream. Okay, sorry, week four. Um, so the next week we have Enrique Rivera, who's coming back for his second lecture. I think he wasn't here last year, um, but in the first year. So he's a master chocolatier, and he's going to talk about elasticity and complex phase transitions. The recipe of the week is hot iced tea and vanilla flan. Enrique, the last time he was here, passed out chocolates. I guess I shouldn't say this. <laughs> but, but, but he did. I don't know what'll happen this time. He, he also cooked with the students. He made this. Spectacular. Um, the lab. Okay, the next week, um, the, um, the, um, the guest speakers are Finna Pugadavella um, um, and people from Le Col and Paco Perez from Miramar. The topic will be diffusion and spherification. The um, recipe of the week will be spherification. Spherification, of course, is one of Pharaoh Adria's principal culinary discoveries and is an endless source of fascination for those of us who think about these things. This is a picture of, the, of one of the students um, who had spherified something and was very pleased. Um, the next week, the topic is heat transfer, um, when the, 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 the lecture will be about browning in paella, which of course is a wonderful example of heat transfer by Raoul Baram. Um, and um, the recipe of the week that week will be molten chocolate cake. Here's an example of the said molten chocolate cake. We have to make you a little jealous that you can't take the class. <laughs> this is the effort to do that. Because, you know, this isn't exactly the class. Got some of the best parts, but not all. There's also the labs. So, okay, then we have in the class a review and a midterm, and Jose Andres is going to review everything for us, which he will do as he always does in spectacular fashion. There's no recipe that week. Here's Jose. Then the next week, we are joined by Wiley Dufresne, who this year will change his topic. As, you, as those of you, the, the stalwarts of this lecture series know, he's in the past talked about meat glue. This year, he's going to talk about viscosity in polymers. And the recipe of the week is milkshakes. In fact, I guess I have one minute. The, the, the question that we're posing to the students is the following. To please create a milkshake um, without ice cream and milk. We can talk about that later. So the next week, actually, we, um, the topic of the week is emulsions and foam. So this is the only week that there's a discordance between the scientific topic and the public lecture series. And in order to make the discordance clear, we decided to make it as blatant as possible. So Dan Barber will talk about compost. Um, and in the class, we will talk about emulsions and foams. It promises to be a spectacular week. Um, the recipe of the week is not compost, but is instead is mayonnaise and lime foam. Um, this is the, what the lab, this is a student will make. So then um, week 10, we move on to chemistry. So we have two weeks of chemistry this year. The first year, the first week, chemistry one, the title of the lecture is, is Bakistry, and the chef will be Joanne Chang from our local flower, um, and, um, and, the, and we will talk about the science thereof. And we then have a second week of chemistry where um, the chef, the guest speaker for that week is going to be America's Test Kitchen, which is also a local um, entity, as you all know. And we will focus on chemical processes and microbes. Then week 12, which is the Monday before Thanksgiving, um, we are joined um, once again by Nathan Mirvold, who will tell us about his view of modernist cuisine. Week 13, we will move on to dessert um, with David Chang and Carlos Tejador. Um, in the class, there will be a review of the entire course through candy making, which sadly you will all miss. Um, and then in week 14, there will be a wrap-up in which Farron Adria comes and wows us with his discussion of innovation and creativity. And so that's it. That's the semester. 
Um, that's the lecture series, and we hope you will come and enjoy it with us. And to get us started on the right foot, I turn it over to Harold. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's really great to be back. Um, I'll just say again briefly what I've said every time I've come, that I wrote the book that I wrote here in Cambridge back in the late 70s and never dreamed that there would be a course like this offered at Harvard University. So it's, it's really fun to be involved with it. Um, you can see that it's an action-packed course. And what I want to do uh, today um, is give you a very quick taste of a few different things, of what soft matter science is, because that's the, the subject of the course, and then a little bit about the history of the interaction between science and cooking, and then a little bit about the history of haute cuisine, which is, again, a big piece of the course, trying to um, explain why it is that this is a very interesting, perhaps uh, unique time in the history of cooking. Uh, and then we're going to move from that, and this is all going to be very quick, into all this stuff. Uh, my partner today in, in the lecture is David Arnold, who <laughs> is the uh, uh, Chief of Culinary Technology at the French Culinary Institute in New York, and the owner of a bar, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, the smartest guy involved in food and drink in the world. Uh, so, and he's got all kinds of stuff, all kinds of stuff going for us. Um, and so I want to save as much time as possible for that. And as you'll see, because there are so many moving parts, this is going to be a little bit of an adventure. So, but we'll, it'll be good stuff, I promise. Um, okay, soft matter science. Uh, I really hadn't heard that term until pretty recently, a few years ago. And it turns out, uh, and this gets back to what, uh, what Michael pointed out about Bria Savaram a couple of centuries ago, saying that uh, discovering a new dish is as important as the discovery of a new star, does more for human happiness. Well, for a long time, uh, things like astronomy, and then later on particle physics, and relativity, and things like that, they, they held sway in the sciences. They were the, the kings of science. Um, and everyday life, the, the stuff that we deal with every day in life, really wasn't paid that much attention to by physicists. But that changed uh, relatively recently, and this man was the first man to win a Nobel Prize for uh, studying these sorts of phenomena, and he's the one who gave the name soft matter science to this field. It turns out that someone before him had proposed the term, but he was the one with the clout to make it stick. And uh, he defined it as the ambiguous states of matter, the paradoxical properties of which depend on the art of mixture. So it's not just, you know, water is uh, solid when it's cold and it becomes a liquid when it's warm and it becomes a gas when it's hot. It's more complicated than that. Uh, the, these states are ambiguous. They don't behave in quite the same way that you might expect, and uh, that is what soft matter science uh, explores. Those are examples of the systems that soft matter scientists uh, investigate, and they all have to do with delicious things, interesting things in foods. Um, so, 
That's just a bit about soft matter science. Now, in his Nobel Prize lecture, Pierre Gilles de Gen talked about Benjamin Franklin's beautiful experiment of around 1770, uh, which is an example of the way in which uh, everyday phenomena can offer windows into deeper truths about nature. And so this is an example of that. Uh, Benjamin Franklin in the uh, 1770s, 1760s, was traveling a lot back and forth between England and the United States and uh, between France and the United States, or uh, the colonies as they then were. Uh, and he noticed on those voyages, when he was in a convoy of ships, that when the cooks in the ship in front of him dumped the garbage, the wake of the ship was calmed. So, you know, pouring oil on troubled waters, same, same idea. He noticed this, he was curious about it, and so he decided to do an experiment. He went to Clapham Pond in London, and this is Clapham Pond, and he went to the corner of the pond that was um, uh, across which the wind was blowing across the pond, put a half teaspoon, measured half teaspoon of oil uh, on that shoreline and then watched the wind spread it. And he wanted to see how much, uh, what, it, what extent of pond the, the oil would cover. And what he found was that one teaspoon of oil covered a half acre of the pond by, by his estimate. Uh, and he, he reported on this and, and kind of left it at that. But it turns out that right there you have the, the makings of uh, a really important uh, deduction, which is what, what is the size of an oil molecule? Because it is essentially spread as thin as it can, a, a monomolecular layer. Back then, of course, they weren't thinking about molecules, but we can now, in retrospect, go back and do the calculation for him, and it turns out that it's pretty close to the dimensions of, uh, of an oil molecule. So it's an example of something very simple, very simple observation can tell you something fundamental about the world that you, you wouldn't know otherwise. Now Dave is doing here uh, an experiment uh, that's related to this. Uh, this is called Dragon's Beard, and Dave, would you like to explain what that is? Yeah, sorry I'm already into it, but uh, it, like, it has a tendency, if you just sit there and watch it, it explodes later on, so you have to get going. This is just uh, sugar. Uh, we added a little cornstarch to it to prevent crystallization uh, and cooked it with a little vinegar, actually. I lied. Vinegar inverts the sugar, also prevents crystallization, to 133 Celsius. And then you just coat it in cornstarch and doggedly pull it again and again and again. Every time you do it, you drag it through cornstarch. It doesn't stick to itself. And so every time I make a figure eight and invert it, I'm increasing by a factor of two the number of strands I have. And as you all know, things that go up uh, exponentially tend to increase dramatically very quickly. So we're going to do uh, 14 turns. And the recipes for this is on my blog, by the way, cookingissues.com. There's a video of it on the YouTube that you can go see that gives the full recipe for it. But this is a traditional candy that's made in, uh, in China. They have a similar candy in Korea. They have a single, similar candy in Turkey. And they have a sing, similar candy in Iran.
Harold, you want to talk about the dimensions as we do this? Yeah, so you can, basically what's happening here, of course, is that uh, as the number of strands multiply, the thickness of the strand declines exponentially, and, uh, or semi. Uh, and uh, so what we're doing is keeping track of the number of strands and also the, the thickness, the ultimate thickness of the strands when, when Dave is done. And I can't see from here how many, how many we have to, 256, okay. So we've got, got a few to go. Yeah. Tell you what, why don't I, because we've got so much stuff to talk about, why don't I keep going and then you just interrupt me when you're up to... Um, the number? Yeah. Okay? <laughs> All right. Is it going okay or are you going to need to warm it up to... There's no stopping now, it's doing what it's okay. doing. <laughs> All right. Anyway, again, this is a, an example of uh, a cooking technique. The previous one wasn't exactly cooking, although um, it turns out that Frank Franklin's experiment is directly relevant to understanding mayonnaise making, because what you're doing in mayonnaise making is trying to coat lots and lots of oil surface with emulsifiers from egg yolk. And so all, all these things really do give you an insight into uh, interesting aspects of uh, and fundam fundamental aspects of nature. Now just as an example of um, something that we take for granted and don't really think too much about but that really is kind of peculiar uh, when you think about it in the context of soft matter science is uh, cheese making. You start with a liquid, you add uh, a liquid to that in, in, which is rennet an extract from the stomach of an animal, but you can also extract it from, it turns out, uh, cardoons, a relative of the artichoke, or from uh, fungi of various kinds. You add, add that to the liquid milk, and the liquid milk turns solid. You haven't heated it, but you turn the milk solid. You turn it into curd. And then, depending on how you process that curd, you can end up with solid Swiss cheese or melting camembert cheese. Uh, this is something that, again, it, it's just sort of uh, part of the, uh, the nature of cheese. But these days, with chefs and other people interested in food, learning about these things and really trying to push them to the extreme, uh, this, this kind of um, uh, uh, this aspect of cheese and the, the interest uh, and love of, for example, the stringy, str stringiness that you get on a, on a piece of pizza led Heston Blumenthal in England to try to make the stringiest possible recipe for a grilled cheese sandwich that he possibly could. And this is what he came up with. <laughs> so th these, uh, again, the, these weird properties of matter when played with uh, can uh, produce really interesting things. Uh, how are we doing, Dave? I did 16,000. I was trying for 32, but I think I stretched it too long. Ah, okay. I'll go 16. So you, you want to try 32? 16? I've already t I've tied it in knots. Wait, hold a second. It's just it's so dang big now. But 16 is what we did the calculation for, right? So yeah. that's So that's uh, what now is it's it? even smaller. 75 or 80 microns. Yeah, thin. Yeah. And uh, according to the web, uh, a human hair is around 45 to 50 microns. And um, I don't know, these, these really look 
to me, thinner than human hairs. So it's, it's amazing that, you know, a very simple mechanical manipulation of a sugar syrup <laughs> can give you that. <laughs> Normally when you do it, it's in uh, starch. Uh, and uh, traditionally in China, there'd be chopped up peanuts and whatnot on the inside, folded on the inside of it, it would be broken into pieces, spun into peanuts. If you're gonna do this, which I recommend at home, I wouldn't use straight cornstarch. I'd uh, do a mixture of cornstarch and cocoa powder is a great recipe. Uh, mixture of cornstarch, malt vinegar powder, uh, mustard powder, uh, and then afterwards sprinkling it with, and smoke powder a little bit, sprinkling it with a little bit of uh, a very fine sea salt and citric acid with peanuts in the inside. Good. You know what I mean? Very good. So you can, you can do a lot, of different, uh, a lot of different things. The main requirement is a very fine powder, getting the temperature of it right. And you, did you guys see when I was doing it how it was a little bit hard and I ran into the back room? In the back room, I nuked it for a second, for like three seconds, just to get it pliable. Don't worry, that's my centrifuge. Don't sweat it. Uh, just to get it pliable enough to work. But it's, it's all about getting the texture in your hands. And once that's actually a little firm, you should be able to pull it without kind of sweating so much. But uh, if you're within a degree or so, uh, either side of good, you can get it to work. Uh, getting back to stringiness. Uh, so th this is the kind of thing, th the kind of phenomenon that students in the course will be studying and measuring. You know, uh, these, these basic properties that we don't really have a good everyday vocabulary for except stringy and not stringy, but you know, viscosity and um, elasticity, these things that are fundamental properties of, uh, of matter are the kinds of things that will be studied in the context of fun stuff like this. This is a, a modernist version of stringy cheese, but I just want to show you that people have been interested in this aspect of cheese for a long time. So this is a, a traditional dish in the Auvergne in France where you take a particular cheese at a particular stage in its evolution and mix it with um, boiled potato and then work it with a paddle and you can end up making uh, tremendous sheets of cheese like that which are elastic. So you, you kind of wrap them around a fork and bite into them and they're chewy in a way that cheese all by itself is not. So it's, it's pretty cool stuff. Cheese is, is amazing. Um, okay, very quick, like five or six slides about the history of the interaction between science and cooking. Um, and this is just to say that uh, human beings and their mastery of the rheology of milk goes way, way back. So this is a, a sieve, piece of a sieve, that goes back uh, thousands of years ago and is the earliest evidence we have of dairying and cheesemaking in the Middle East. So that aspect of things uh, has been of interest to humans for a long time. A, a couple of interesting uh, points along the way. I put this up because I'm going to show you, and Dave is going to do some things that you might think are, you know, maybe uh, a little bit more for entertainment than for deliciousness. Uh, this is just to say that that strand in cooking has uh, been going for a very long time. So this is a medieval uh, recipe 
for making a chicken seem as though it's alive when it's not. Uh, and it involves stuffing the chicken with mercury and sulfur. So, you know, it may have had something to do with the longevity of the rulers of the Middle Ages. Uh, uh, but in the Middle Ages, some really basic things were developed for the first time. For example, meat jellies, aspics, things like that, where you take bones and skin, cook them, extract the gelatin, and the gelatin sets into a gel. That's soft matter. That's a, a peculiar behavior of, of matter that is, has delicious um, properties and consequences. And sugar confections as well, the kind of thing that Dave just did. Um, this is Denis Papin in the, uh, in the era of the Royal Society when Isaac Newton was a member. Uh, and that's his invention, which is the pressure cooker. So the pressure cooker goes back to the 17th century. The members of the Royal Society, generally speaking, were bachelors, and so they didn't have much to do for supper. So they would get together uh, in groups with a couple of uh, Pepin's digesters, and they would have digester parties. They would just put something new in the digester to see what happened. And uh, they kept diaries, many of these people, and it's great to go back and read them because it's, you get the sense that they're encountering uh, a part of the, the culinary universe that never existed before. It's like, it's like discovering the new world, but in food. Uh, discovering new dishes, discovering uh, uh, something as interesting as a new star. Um, I'm skipping over a lot now to try to explain why it is that we lost sight of that connection between science and cooking. And it kind of has to do with what role science was asked to play in the late 19th, early 20th centuries when there were lots of problems with, uh, with sanitation, with contamination, uh, often intentional adulteration. And so the first food chemists were actually trained uh, to detect fraud. That's, that's where the, uh, the profession of food chemistry began. And that's a very different side of things from discovering new dishes and just enjoying the, the pleasures of understanding uh, the system itself. This was very directed and had to do with, with uh, making the food supply safe and uh, honest as much as possible. Uh, the group uh, in the lower right here were the earliest members of the Food and Drug Administration and their job was, uh, they were called the poison squad. They were essentially human guinea pigs. So there were a lot of people using things like, well, benzoic acid, which is still used today as a preservative, but formaldehyde was being used as a preservative. And they would sit there at that table and eat a few tablespoons of formaldehyde and see what happened. So again, that's, that's, uh, that's how the food science, food chemistry professions began in this country and I think explains a lot about why for a long time food science and food chemistry didn't seem that interesting to most people. Uh, another side of it was that cooking itself, um, home economics was sort of based on the model of what people did in food uh, science and food chemistry. Uh, there was an attempt to make it professional, to make it more respectable by making it professional. And what that meant in practice was that uh, people who wrote about cooking uh, in, in a scientific way tried to drain it of as much uh, 
um, kind of subjectivity as possible, and that meant taking all the fun out of it, taking all the pleasure out of it. So here's uh, a remarkable woman, first, first graduate of MIT, co-founder of Woods Hole, inventor of the term ecology uh, in its common use these days, an amazing woman, but it's clear that she had no use for flavor in foods. Just didn't, it wasn't interesting compared to hygiene and, um, and nutrition. So that's why I think we kind of got off the track and thought that food science and food chemistry are not that interesting. They're, they're, uh, they're boring. They don't really have to do with what we do in our homes and what we enjoy about foods. The turnaround came beginning in the 1960s with this man, Nicholas Curti, who was a professor of physics at Oxford. He, uh, he was a, a distinguished physicist, but he also really loved food, and he tried to marry the two uh, interests that he had, and, he, and so he said this in 1969, that he thought it was shocking that we knew more about the atmosphere of Venus than we did about what goes on inside our souffles, and then set about to remedy that situation by putting a thermocouple inside a souffle in his home oven and watching the temperature and, and checking to see its consistency as it cooked. And what he noticed was, and by the way, this graph is actually running that way, so time zero is at the right and 40 minutes is at the far left. Uh, what he noticed was that the perfect consistency, as far as he was con concerned, came at the end of that plateau before the, the curve began to rise again. And that plateau has to do with the denaturation of the egg proteins. They're, they're solidifying, they're coagulating. And it's when that process is over, but just barely over, that the souffle is at its best. So he, he took his eyes off Venus, took his eyes off uh, a new star, and trained them back in his kitchen and came up with a very useful piece of information. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, I was a, a newly minted literature PhD in search of something to make a living at and found myself here in Cambridge with the amazing resources of the Schlesinger Library and with the idea that a book about the science of cooking would be an interesting thing to try. And uh, so I did. I spent uh, several wonderful years in the Schlesinger Library and Widener as well and uh, wrote this book, which uh, in 1984 uh, didn't get a whole lot of attention. The chefs of those days were not American. They had been trained in the European sort of apprentice um, um, program, the tradition, and they said, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to know these things, but it really has nothing to do with what I do in my kitchen. Uh, I cook these dishes because the people before me cooked these dishes and they figured out how to make them good. So it was really the, the younger generation of cooks, the people who were going to school, the people who were apprenticing, the people who were too impatient either to go to school or to apprentice and just loved food and wanted to open their own restaurants. Those were the people who first started using my book and made it possible ultimately for me to make a living. Um, and then uh, a few years after that, there was a, a meeting in Sicily of the handful of us in the world that were interested in the subject at the time. Uh, and that includes uh, Nicholas Curti, who's at the center. He convened this meeting on molecular gastronomy. Uh, I'm over at the right. Pierre-Gilles de Gennes, whose wife owned a restaurant 
uh, is sitting to the right of Professor Kurti. Uh, Hervé Thies, who's a, which is a name you might know from, from this kind of thing, is sitting at the right. So there were maybe 40 or 50 of us who would go to these meetings, uh, some of them scientists, some of them chefs, some of them uh, writers, and we would get together and talk about uh, these sorts of things, how to improve traditional techniques, how to understand traditional techniques, but not really how can we use uh, our knowledge to come up with something new, a new dish. Uh, we weren't, weren't really thinking that much about innovation. So, now shifting to haute cuisine, because that's where innovation came, and that's how the molecular gastronomy meetings got uh, discovered, because all this was kind of happening off most people's radar screen. Uh, so again, very, very quickly, and of course, the world is a big place, and the French are not the only story here, but they're the, the relevant story for this particular, uh, this particular course. So, um, in the 18th century, when classic French cooking was developing, there was a, an appreciation for what it is that chemistry could do for cooks. And so this is a, a, um, an illustration from a book from that time with a little ditty underneath uh, a picture of a woman cooking at a stove, basically saying uh, everybody wants a new experience, a new dish all the time, so you have to be a chemist. You have to understand your materials, you have to understand the processes, you have to come up with new, new compounds, new combinations of things. That's the way you can keep up with this constant demand for something new. So the term nouvelle cuisine was actually being used in the 18th century for what we would now call classic French cooking. These are the guys who uh, really established classic French cooking both amazing figures in their own times, uh, and they did a remarkable job essentially of um, organizing and systematizing French cooking as it existed in the 19th and then early 20th centuries. Uh, so they wrote multi-volume tomes and uh, are still thought of as sort of the, the godfathers of, of classic French cooking. The problem with it was that in systematizing, they, again, kind of drained the life out of the profession. And that led to uh, a reaction. This is just an example of the kind of thing that you find if you go to a scoffier and ask, what should I do with beef tenderloin? So there are uh, many, many recipes, 100 recipes for slices of tenderloin. And all those slices, uh, it is specified, should be a certain thickness. They should be served on a certain size crouton. If they have this kind of garnish, they should have this kind of sauce, that kind of garnish, that kind of sauce. And that was, that was the rule. And if you were cooking uh, in, a, in a restaurant, high-end restaurant, that's the way you cooked, by Escoffier. And that's what diners expected. They wanted an execution of this you know, uh, steak a la so-and-so. That's, that's the, the specificity that they wanted. So this led to a reaction among chefs because they felt, uh, some of them, that this just didn't leave them enough room for interesting things to do for themselves. And so we had the new Nouvelle Cuisine, which developed in the 1960s and 70s, which allowed for inventiveness and in fact said, if you really want to be 
a modern chef, then you need to be inventive. You need to come up with new things. You need to try new techniques and, um, and new machines. So uh, one of the, the prime practitioners of the Nouvelle Cuisine was Michel Brat. He lived far from Paris, out in the countryside. Uh, his restaurant was out there. He was especially fond of uh, that countryside and of the things that it offered to his cooking. Uh, by the way, he's the inventor of one of the, the uh, experiments that the students in the course will be doing, which is this molten chocolate cake, which has become uh, beloved around the world. Before him, it didn't exist. Before him, you had a cake, and you either poured some sauce on top, or you put the cake on top of some sauce. But to have the cake be cut open and have the sauce come outside was a revelation for the time. So he invented that. He also invented this, which uh, proved to be tremendously influential in the development of uh, today's uh, inventive cooking. So he called this gargouillou, which in the dialect of the Auvergne means mixture. And it was essentially a composed salad that he served every, every day at the restaurant. Uh, there are plenty of composed salads in Escoffier, the difference being that in Escoffier you're told exactly what vegetables go into them and what the sauce is going to be. Michel Brad decided, uh, because it was going to be a mixture from his place, that what appeared on his plate would be whatever he found to be of interest or ripe or ready around his restaurant, walking in the countryside or going to the market, didn't matter. For him, it was all fair game for making a dish that was very specific to him and to his place and to that moment in time. So again, it doesn't seem like an amazingly different way of thinking now, but back then it was. And it was, uh, as I say, tremendously liberating for other chefs to see someone doing something like this. So one of those chefs who was influenced by this dish uh, is standing at the far right in this photograph. It was a meeting of chefs in 1987, and the guy in blue jeans in the middle, uh, Jacques Maximin, uh, said something in the course of that meeting that really stuck with the guy on the right. And what he said was this, to be creative means not to copy. Again, not a remarkable sentiment, uh, but the guy on the right took it really seriously, more seriously than anyone in the food business has ever taken it. He took that to mean, I have to come up with something new every time I open my restaurant. Uh, every season I open my restaurant. And then within the season, I can't just keep doing the same thing over and over again. I have to constantly find ways to do something new, to really push the boundaries. And so he, he wanted to do a version of Gargouillou, the composed salad, because for him that was such a, an iconic dish. But he couldn't just go to his restaurant and pick, pick plants from around his restaurant because they would be, yes, specific to his place, but the concept was Michel Bras, not his. And so this is what he came up with. That's Ferran Adria's Gargouillou, uh, in which instead of taking ingredients and, um, uh, that, that don't usually appear in a particular dish and presenting them as something very specific. 
what he's done is taken ingredients and transformed them in such a way that you have no idea what you're looking at. He's transformed their physical structure. He's taken one form of soft matter and he's turned it into another form of soft matter for the purpose, uh, uh, well, all kinds of purposes, but one of the most important being, if you look at a salad and you've had lettuce before, you've, you've had cucumber, tomato, before you even put it in your mouth, you know what it's going to taste like, kind of. And what he wanted to do was put something in front of you so that every bite you took, the first few bites you took, would be complete surprises because you couldn't know from looking at it what it was that you were going to get in your mouth. And sometimes with, with dishes like this, you put it in your mouth and you know that you've tasted that before, but you can't place it because you don't have all the other cues to help you identify it, which is a really wonderful way to experience food. It's maddening in some ways, uh, but it helps you realize how much of our enjoyment of food is conditioned, and we, we're not really experiencing it freshly very often. Anyway, uh, Ferran Adrial was off on his mission, and uh, a few years later, he made the cover of the New York Times Sunday Magazine as the author of the Nueva Nouvelle Cuisine, because it was being done in Spain. Uh, and ever since then, he has been a tremendous force both by what he has done and by what he has inspired other chefs of his generation to do to, uh, to really change things, to look at food and cooking uh, in a very fundamental way as soft matter that can be transformed in many different ways, only a few of which traditional cooks have explored. And so there's been a lot of interesting stuff going on over the last few years. I just want to give you a few examples of things that have been done by chefs who are going to be coming to give lectures in subsequent uh, weeks in this course. Uh, this is the, the spherification that Ferran came up with, which is essentially taking any liquid you like and turning it in, into something like caviar, a little skin surrounding uh, some juice so that when you put it in your mouth, it pops and you get this burst of flavor and he made it uh, general, generalizable so that you could do it with anything. He's done it here with melon juice, but you could do it with anything. Uh, the Roca brothers, who will be coming next week, uh, have done really interesting things in a number of ways, but particularly using the rotary evaporator to separate the flavors of foods from the foods themselves. So you take a, an apple, you put it in a rotovap, and you distill off the aromas into a liquid, which you then draw off. It's a concentrated source of flavor, but the apple doesn't come with it. The structure of the apple, the, the rest of the apple, is still in the machine. So you end up with this little vial of concentrated flavor. And the Rokas have, done, have, have used that technique to make dishes like these, the, the lower, left, lower right one, they look like lemon sorbet or champagne or uh, milk custard, something like that. But in fact, uh, each of those um, different versions of soft matter uh, have flavors that we associate with very deeply colored foods. So you put a little bit of those things in your mouth and it turns out that one of them is chocolate, one of them is coffee, one of them, one of them is passion fruit, one of them is tonka bean. 
so again, there's, there's this disparity between what you're expecting from what you see and what you actually experience in your mouth, and then you end up experiencing that flavor in a, in a very different way. The upper left-hand one is something that I actually uh, tasted uh, early on in my explorations of this food uh, at their restaurant, and you can't see it too well, but it's essentially an oyster inside a uh, transparent jelly. And I put it in my mouth, and I got the oyster flavor right away, but I couldn't make out what the jelly flavor was. It, it was familiar, but uh, just really hard to place, and didn't really seem that it was a food flavor. I kept you know, running through, is it spice, fruit, uh, vegetable? And I finally realized what it was. Um, what he had done, uh, Joan Roca, was to distill the flavor out of a handful of soil. So the dish is called Oyster and Earth, and what you literally get is the flavor of oyster and the flavor of the earth. Now, any of you who know environmental chemistry know that that's a problematic thing, uh, but back then it was, it was an initial foray, and they know a lot more about distillation than they did back then. Um, uh, uh, Jose Andres came up with this wonderful invention, which is about this big and it's made out of a, a material called isomalt, which is like sugar, but much easier to work with than sugar. In fact, Dave was thinking this afternoon maybe he should have made the, uh, the dragon's beard out of isomalt because it would have been more cooperative. Uh, it's what cough drops and things like that are made out of, things that are they're, they're hard like uh, hard candy, but uh, they're not as sweet. It's a, it's, a, it's a sugar relative, but it's not sugar itself. Anyhow, he uses it basically the way a glass blower would use it and makes these beautiful little things which are, as I say, about that big. And it's a, it's a, a container with nothing inside it but olive oil. He, um, he melts the isomalt, puts it essentially under a straw, dips a straw in it, and then drips the uh, olive oil down the straw and the weight of the oil as it hits the film of isomalt deforms it into that uh, beautiful shape. And then he puts a, a crystal of salt on the top, a little bit of uh, vinegar powder on the bottom, and then you've got the essence of vinaigrette without the salad. There's one burst of the flavor of vinaigrette and it's gone. And then Wiley Dufresne from New York uh, works a lot with something called meat glue. Uh, which is actually an enzyme that, uh, that links proteins together, holds proteins together. So that allows you to do really interesting things with uh, protein-rich foods, foods like shrimp. So uh, in the upper left, what you see are noodles that are pure shrimp. No starch, no flour, pure shrimp, and, but with the texture of, of a noodle. And then he's used uh, meat glue again in the lower right to make what he thought of as the, the ultimate McNugget, uh, a piece of breast meat surrounded by a piece of thigh meat surrounded by skin, all held in place by meat glue. And because of the, the way they've been layered, each is cooked perfectly, and you end up with the best of the chicken. And then David Chang, also in New York, uh, has been doing a lot of interesting work with uh, unusual fermentations. So in Asia, uh, there, there are these long traditions of fermenting all kinds of things. 
and getting very interesting products, flavorings. I mean, soy sauce, of course, is the most obvious, but many, many different versions of uh, things that make other foods more delicious because they're so concentrated in flavor. So David has been exploring uh, the application of those basic ideas to North American ingredients. So he's, he's in this case, uh, applied a technique that's, a, that's used in Japan for fish. Here he's applied it to pork and come up with um, a very different set of microbes that are doing the fermentation, which, which are still being explored, uh, in fact, by microbiologists here at Harvard. So, um, uh, just now a couple of words about the fact that this is a really exciting time because rather than early in, earlier in the 20th century, food science, food chemistry, and cooking being these very, very separate domains, they're now mixing freely and all kinds of interesting things are coming up. So uh, chemists are now taking cooking seriously. This is a recent paper looking at different ways of making meat stock. And uh, if you, turns out, cook a meat stock long and slow, you end up with more flavor, more aroma in the stock than if you cook it to the same thickness, the same kind of stickiness, uh, but do so very quickly. And that, that simply wasn't known. Uh, the, uh, the Nordic Food Lab is, the, is a, an arm of a restaurant called Noma in Copenhagen, which has, over the last few years, been voted frequently the best restaurant in the world, whatever that means. Uh, they are uh, so devoted to pushing the boundaries again and, and exploring new possibilities and sharing the results of those uh, explorations that they now have a website where they post their experimental results regularly. Uh, they call this open source research. And so this is just a scene of their uh, vinegar experiments. They're using lots of different uh, microbes, they're using lots of different liquids, and trying to see what sorts of possibilities are, there are in the Acetobacter uh, flavor part of the world that, that haven't been explored yet. And nowadays, you know, one of the problems with academic science is that the journals are really expensive to subscribe to. And you, you might hear about an interesting paper in biology or anthropology. You try to read it, and it turns out that there's a uh, payment barrier, and it's $50 for the privilege of reading this paper. Um, there are now two journals in this kind of um, hybrid area of uh, cooking and science that are open source, so you, you don't have to subscribe. They're again meant to facilitate the flow of information uh, uh, among all people who are interested in, uh, in science and in food these days. So, uh, that's the, the brave new world that we are in now. These are the sorts of things that the students in the, in the course will be taking a look at. And now Dave is gonna give us a lot of examples of interesting things you can do with soft matter science. Howdy. Uh, I'm Dave Arnold, and for many years, uh, my job has been to teach new techniques, technologies, ingredients to professional chefs. Uh, and what that meant is I got to hang out with a lot of uh, kind of really good, uh, high-powered, awesome chefs and uh, learn with them when they were coming up with a lot of new techniques and, you know, thankfully also get to come up with some techniques myself. Uh, very recently, I uh, opened a bar in New York City called Booker and Dax. You can visit us at uh, 12th Street and 2nd Avenue behind Sambar. Uh, 
and uh, we're devoted to using new technologies uh, and techniques, but in kind of a different way than you're going to see through most of this class, in that uh, we, don't really we don't really want you to have to know about the technology to enjoy the drink. We try to have like maximum technology without maximum kind of flashy drinks. Just to sh You'll get an example. I'm going to make you one. I'm not going to make you. I'm not allowed to serve it to you, unfortunately. But I'm going to make a drink from the bar and show you. But most of what I want to do today isn't plated work. Uh, you know, this is the first lecture in the science and cooking uh, you know, lecture series. And so I want to talk uh, somewhat about some uh, basic principles and ideas uh, that you know, we think about when we're, when we're in the kitchen, and also some interesting facts that you can carry with you throughout the rest of the lecture series, yeah? OK, so uh, we were told that we're supposed to talk somewhat about uh, basic food molecules. So here we go. Let's start with carbohydrates, right? So you know, you know like the basic food molecules, what, you know, styles of molecules. One of them is carbohydrates, basically sugars and complex sugars. Both of you all with me so far? Yeah? OK, so uh, it turns out that uh, you know, a lot of the new work that's being done in uh, kitchens nowadays has to do with a group of complex sugars called hydrocolloids uh, that we've been using in the kitchen now for, like, in a very hardcore, heavy-duty, like, straight-up way for about 10 years now. Been really huge for about 10 years. And the alginate uh, spheres, of which I'm not a huge fan because they don't taste... Okay, whatever, I'm not going to talk about it. But, uh, like, uh, um, the... Um, uh, it, alginate is one. Uh, there are many, many uh, of these hydrocolloids, and they each have uh, kind of unique properties. But I'm going to show you one that is extremely versatile that you can buy in any Asian uh, grocery store. It's called agar, agar, uh, aka kanten, if you go to a Japanese store. It's one of the most versatile uh, hydrocolloids, and it's, it's basically just a, a long, complex sh uh, sugar molecule, uh, polysaccharide, from seaweed. And it's going to show you some of the stuff that it can do. OK, uh, so uh, agar, like all hydrocolloids, you need to do two things to it to get it to work right. You need to first disperse it and then, uh, and then hydrate it. So I just have some water. By the way, so you, you ever know, you guys cook? You guys cook, people? You cook? Yeah? So if you add, uh, if you add starch to uh, hot gravy, what happens? But what, it, it balls up into little balls, right? And it's because you didn't disperse, right? You didn't disperse the starch away from itself so that it glommed together and became very difficult, right? For, because what happens is sugar, when you dissolve sugar, I'm going to turn this on now because I've dispersed it. Uh, when you dissolve sugar, sugar is a relatively small molecule, right? And it dissolves relatively easily. So a giant clump of sugar, the way a giant clump of sugar dissolves is that little sugar molecules get hydrated and pop off of the clump of sugar. That's why a lump of sugar, if you stir it, it will dissolve in fairly short order, right? Hydrocolloids are extremely long molecules. And so what happens is the molecules on the outside, and starch is the same way, even though it's not really classified as a hydrocolloid, it really is. Same dang stuff, it's just whatever, anyway. So like what happens is the molecules on the outside start hydrating, but they don't fully come off. And you get a swollen layer on the outside, and they never, it's very difficult to break them up. So you need to what's called disperse them, get them away from each other so that they can hydrate. And then you need to hydrate. And so most hydrocolloid problems in the kitchen, in fact, most things I tell chefs all the time, when they say this recipe didn't work, that recipe didn't work, I'm like, did you disperse and hydrate? Disperse and hydrate. That's like the only thing, it's like, it's like, it's like almost like I don't even need to be Either. I could leave that on an answering machine. Disperse and hydrate. And that solves about 90% of chef's problems with these uh, new recipes. 
All right, so for agar to work, it has to uh, come up to a boil, right? Every hydrocolloid is different, and you have to learn uh, how to make it work. So when you, when you hydrate it now, it goes from being a powder that's not totally surrounded by uh, water molecules. It's not like a piece of spaghetti flapping around inside, inside of the water. It goes from that to being a piece of spaghetti flapping around inside of the water. And then once it cools down again, right, then it falls partially out of solution, forms a gel with itself, right? Good, 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 okay. Uh, stir this here. So this is just pure water, and the reason is is because I'm going to put some lime juice into it, and I don't want to boil the lime juice. By the way, in general, you, you don't always need to go with pure water, but just as another thing, I always tell uh, chefs when they're working, you know, you want to you want to hydrate a hydrocolloid in as close to pure water as possible. They don't really like playing with other uh, molecules, especially like large concentrations of sugar. Unless it's something like a pectin, they really don't play nicely. Okay, so I'm going to stir in. This is lime juice. And I'm making a very, very light gel. This is going to be two grams of agar per liter of product. And I'm going to show you why I'm doing this in a minute. And agar has a really nice property that it sets extremely quickly once it cools down. So I'm going to pour it on an ice bath, and in just a couple of minutes, it's going to be set. All right? Now, agar. What's the big deal? This is an agar gel, right? Agar gels, every gel, shut up. Every gel has uh, different properties. And we want to just take a look. This is orange juice with lime juice in it. And agar, this is about 0.8%. Agar gel uh, is brittle, right? So if you take gelatin and go like this, it would bend. Agar, you see how it breaks, right? So every gel has characteristic uh, qualities that you need to know about it. And agar, fundamentally, is brittle. This is one of the, this is one of the kind of just things you need to know about agar. Um, tastes okay, tastes right, okay. So, uh, so here's this, this is the gel. Also, because it's brittle, it cuts extremely cleanly. And I'm not gonna talk about it because the professor's gonna talk about it a lot later in the course, what actual textural terms mean because uh, 10 times out of 10, if you're not actually paying attention to what the terms you're using mean, you actually use them incorrectly. Like you use elastic uh, versus brittle incorrectly. Correct or incorrect or incorrect. These are completely used uh, incorrectly, like rheological terms, right? So I'm not going to get into it now because I don't want to use it incorrectly and then have to get corrected in front of everyone. But anyway, uh, agar is brittle. So what's another interesting property of uh, agar? Well, uh, most gels, you see how I cut that gel and it broke? This gel will never come together again. I could sit here all day and push this gel into this thing, and it's never going to join back into a gel again. There are gels that do that. Uh, iota carrageenan is, is one that, that does that. And they're known as um, shear reversible gels. Uh, agar is not like that. Agar, once you break it, it's broken. However, agar has an extremely interesting property that it shares with a couple of other famous hydrocolloids, like, ah, like uh, gelan. Uh, and that is, when you blend it, it forms what's called a fluid gel. Right? So a lot of chefs use agar as uh, just a gel, and it's fine for just a gel. It has some interesting properties as a gel. It has fairly good what's called flavor release. Remember I told you how I didn't like alginate? Right? And I said I wasn't going to talk about it? Well, the reason I hate alginate is because alginate has uh, what's called poor flavor release. You ever make pasta? Flour has terrible flavor release. That's why you can flavor, that's why you can color your pasta with ketchup to make red pasta, and it doesn't taste like ketchup pasta, it just tastes like pasta, because pasta sucks up flavor. And alginate is the same way. I call it a flavor thief, right? 
Agar, on the other hand, is not a flavor thief. Agar uh, it has fairly good flavor release. And uh, the reason, and we're going to see it, and it's partially the reason it does so many other cool things, is because uh, it has a very porous structure, and it allows a lot of the liquid that's inside of it uh, to come out and hit your tongue. Gelatin has a great flavor release because it melts on your tongue. Like gelatin is kind of, you know, gelatin is the gold star flavor release machine, right? So gelatin and pectin are the two, like they're up here in terms of flavor release, and all others, you know, all others are, well, they're, they're others. Um, gelatin also interesting, the only real hydrocholide we use that's protein based. Okay. I have a conflicted relationship with blenders. Uh, now, the primary properties of a fluid gel, you're like, so what, guy blended, you know, whatever. Now listen, watch this. Here's what's awesome about a fluid gel. Several things that are awesome about a fluid gel. Uh, I always joke around with my compatriot, Nils Noren, who I was taught with for many years at the French culinary, that it shouldn't really be called uh, a fluid gel. Most of the ones we use should be called a gel fluid because we're relying more on the gel properties of it than a fluid. But here's what it is. Basically, it acts like a gel. Can you see that? I don't know what you can see. No? Can you see it now? <laughs> now? No? Where can I put it that you'll be able to see it? Here? <laughs> I've ruined it! Okay, hold on a sec, I'll do it again. Can you see it? Yeah. So the trick is that uh, it acts like a puree. Do you see that? It acts like a puree. So it holds up, it holds its shape. Can you see it now? Right? But as soon as you apply shear to it, as soon as there's force on it, see that? See how it sauces out like that? It starts acting like a liquid as soon as you apply force to it. So when you put it in your mouth, it takes on the characteristics of a liquid, a fluid, and a gel. So when there's no shear applied to it, when there's no force applied to it, acts like a gel, and when there's force applied to it, acts like a liquid. Now, there are hydrocolloids that act like this all on their own. Xanthan gum is a famous one, and it's used to stabilize salad dressing. And that's why bad salad dressing looks like snot, because they've added too much xanthan to it, and it's got that snotty look to it, right? Uh, it, but, but with this kind of a fluid gel, actually, you don't get the kind of a snot, the kind of like Santa Claus jiggle belly thing that you get with uh, xanthan gum that makes it so horrible. Uh, for that, I mean, I love xanthan, I really do, I'm not saying that. But uh, look, all of this stuff is, it, it's all like how you apply it, by the way. So when I say xanthan can be horrible, it's because the bad application of xanthan is horrible. The same way that the bad application of heat in an oven ruins a piece of meat, the bad application of xanthan in a dish gives you snot. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's not the xanthan that's bad, it's the application that's bad. Okay, so, uh, so this fluid gel is fantastic for doing things like sauces that have a great body on the plate. They look great, but when you put them in your mouth, they cream out and have great flavor release, right? So fluid gel, right away, is, uh, is some awesome business. Fluid gels are also interesting because you can foam them. So let's, uh, let's do two different, two different foams. This is something that people do with fluid gels quite a lot. Uh, I'm going to do one that I think is not so good, uh, but that, you know, some people use, right? And remember, when... When you have a fluid gel, uh, when it's not under force, right, it's going to act like a gel, which means it's going to hold air bubbles. Anyone see where I put the, oh. 
These are whipped cream makers. I use these for lots of things, for this kind of thing and also for doing infusions under pressure and all sorts of, and for making whipped cream, by the way, the original awesome foam. <laughs> the original and still greatest foam, I think, is whipped cream, it's gotta be. Um, and egg whites, I mean, there's many foams. I mean, we all talk about foams as being some sort of a new thing, which is, you know, malarkey. So this is, by itself, uh, Right, you see how it, like, it foams up? And it'll hold like that for forever, uh, unfortunately. Because you know, I think it's relatively kind of gummy on its own, but where this kind of thing really shines is imagine if you could make a whipped cream that had a huge concentration of lime juice and orange juice in it like this, but that didn't break and had that kind of a dense, dense, dense body to it. Well, you can, because the fluid gel uh, basically uh, holds uh, a lot of that stuff uh, to itself and prevents, and I don't really know the, I don't really know the reason why, but it just doesn't freaking curdle. And you can you can put a boatload of citrus and other things into a whipped cream using an agar fluid gel that you could never do uh, any other way, and just get these really nice. I can do it with cassis. I can get like a really dark, dark purple cassis whipped cream that just holds really beautifully and doesn't break or curdle or have any sort of other nasty problems. Right, so that has enough lime juice and orange juice in it for it normally to just be a curdled, rotten mess, right? And, but now she works great, fluid gels. Um, let me see what this guy's set already. I need, I need, a, I need a minute. So, like, so uh, another interesting thing about fluid gels, and hopefully I'll show you in a minute when this thing uh, works, not fluid gels, agar. Uh, I said agar is porous, right? Did I mention this? You know what, porous, big holes, right? So a lot, of agar, a lot of gels are fairly tight, like the actual strands are fairly tight. But in agar, you have extremely easy uh, transport of liquid through the gel, right? Which is actually useful for some scientific processes as well. Fantastic for the chef, because what this means is when you break an agar gel by force, right? You can either freeze it and thaw it. Agar is not freeze-thaw stable, so when you freeze it and thaw it, liquids drip out of it, weep out of it, right? Or you can bra break it by force, liquids weep out of those pores like the end of the world is coming. It's uh, called cineresis, the, leak, the leak, leaking of liquid out of a gel. And all gels have some cineresis, uh, but agar just weeps like a weasel. And what's awesome is that, uh, is that what it weeps out is crystal clear. Right, because the gel structure traps the larger particles that actually create cloudiness and turbidity in your product, um, and leave the rest of the, and, leave, and leave you with clear, uh, clear, awesome, awesome stuff. So this is how uh, I actually clarify a good number of the things that I make at the bar. Right, and so why do you want to why do you want to clarify things? You want to clarify things for several important reasons. The most important is if you're going to carbonate something, right, which we're going to do in a minute. If you're going to carbonate something uh, and you have lots of particles in it, right, those particles form nucleation sites for bubbles, right. So bubbles, bubbles, bubbles love to grow. They love to grow. They hate to form. Hate it. Hate forming love growing. So if you give them a site on which to grow, right, then they're going to foam like a bastard, 
Okay, uh, so what you do is if you put an unclarified uh, product in, especially something like lime, which also has other surface active prop, the juice has surface active properties. It wants to hold foam anyway, aside from the rest of the stuff that's in it, okay? Uh, and, and, alcohol too, nightmare. Uh, so when you add the lime juice and it's not clarified properly, you have a huge foaming mess and you can't get good carbonation. So because I'm a bubble freak, as you shall see, uh, you know, it is required, it is necessary that I uh, clarify. But also, uh, if I take fruits and, uh, and other drinks, I don't like a soupy mess. Uh, I don't like my drink, I don't want my drink to be my soup, okay? So uh, I like often to uh, do clarification. Let me see where this guy's ready yet. We'll come back to him in a minute. But this agar clarification, while it's great, right, and was the way uh, that I did uh, clarification for years, uh, turns out there's a much better way. And that way is uh, the centrifuge. So before I go, we should do, which we, which we do? that's agar. Any questions on agar? Which we do questions later? That make any sense? Okay, uh, so anyway, so this, this, is like, uh, this is like agar like four or five different ways. And this is just one hydrocolloid. It happens to be one of my favorites. It happens to be uh, one of the most accessible and the easiest to get and the least controversial. Uh, but it also happens to be one of the most useful and uh, one of the most bulletproof. It also, you can even heat up gels you make with agar, not as much as with someone else, but it's, it's really like, if you were gonna put one hydrocolloid in your back pocket and know how to use it inside and outside, Agar, that's the way to go. Uh, okay, uh, but that's not the way I clarify at the bar because it takes skill and time and the yield isn't as high, right? Yield means how much I get out of uh, the product of what I put in, right? Uh, so I use a centrifuge. Now, I don't expect you to go purchase a centrifuge. I mean, I kind of do, but uh, at, at the bar, I use a three liter centrifuge that can do three liters of juice at a time. Uh, the interesting thing, like part of what makes my job interesting, uh, kind of what, I like to do, my, what I think about a lot, is uh, how, to f uh, how to figure out better ways to do things like clarify, right? So I'm not sitting around necessarily thinking about dishes. I'm thinking, can I get that juice to clarify with a crappier centrifuge so that more people can do it, right? So, uh, there, there is, so agar is clarifying, if I if ever sets, I can show you. Agar clarifies by forming a gel and then trapping the particles behind. Centrifuge, on the other hand, separates on a by a different principle, right? D distillation, which Harold talked about, separates based on volatility, based on boiling point, right? Agar separates on basically on size, what's going to go through the, the, the network of the gel. And uh, centrifuge separates based on density, right? On the, on the density of the product and how it travels through a solution. Now, uh, you can clarify lime juice in a centrifuge, okay, uh, but uh, brute force clarification just by spinning and applying force, extra, extra centripetal force to it, or centripetal however, don't tell me it's fake, for, I don't care, okay. Um, but the, uh, it, it takes about 48,000 Gs to do that, 48,000 times the force of gravity. I can do it at 27,000 Gs, but it tastes really bad, metallic and crappy. If you up it to 48,000 Gs, then you can get a really awesome uh, lime juice just by putting in and spinning it. Problem is, only Nathan Mirvold from Microsoft can afford a centrifuge to spin at 48,000 Gs, and you need to get a new rotor every couple of years and derate it because those rotors will blow apart on you and spray aluminum parts all over your, uh, all over your apartment. However, 
there are other techniques that you can do to lower the amount of force needed to get something to clarify properly. And that's the kind of stuff that I sit around thinking about, right? That's kind of like the, co that's the core of my, of my thinking. Like, how, how can we do this? So the first thing is this enzyme. And this enzyme, Pectinex Ultra SPL, is in 75% of the drinks at my bar as a, pro a processing aid. I'm not serving it to you like in shots like this. It's crazy. I mean, I could, uh, but, but, uh, but I don't. Uh, th this ends, uh, 80, 75, 80% uh, have seen some Pectinex uh, Ultra SPL at one time or another. And what this does is it's a pectinase and also a hemicellulase. It's kind of a broad shotgun uh, enzyme from a fungus uh, that uh, breaks down plant tissues, okay? Specifically fruit tissues, and it's used uh, in the fruit industry. So I add this, I, in a blender, I add this to almost any fruit, and it breaks down the pectin. Pectin is stabilizing, right, thickening the liquids. So it breaks that down, and it allows me to spin and spin out all the solids with much less force. Problem is, it doesn't really work with uh, lime juice that well because lime juice is too acidic and the enzyme doesn't really react that well. So I have to use a little bit of a more sophisticated technique, right? I have to use charged molecules, right? And then ha use basically electrostatics to attract the larger charged particles together so that they become larger larger units so that I can then use my crappy centrifuge to spin this stuff out, right? Uh, so you would hope that you can use just one, right? But it turns out that you have to hit it with a negatively charged thing. Uh, think this one. I always confuse which one's negative. This is silica, a suspended silica saw, kiesel saw that you get at a wine, uh, a wine shop, homebrew wine shop, right? So I hit it with this guy and some enzyme because what the hell. And then... Uh, after a bit, I hit it with this guy, which is positively charged, so all this stuff flocks to this. Then this gets the stuff that didn't flock to this, plus these things, because these things have an excess of charge now. They go to this, and then I have to hit it again with this so that they flock again together. So I have to hit it multiple times uh, to get the particles to flock together big enough so that I can use a crappy uh, centrifuge and get lime juice that spins out like this, right, uh, in a centrifuge that only costs $150. See? So this is the kind of stuff that, that I mean, that's just, that, yeah, this is what I think about. Um, all right, and I'll do carbonation in, in a second. You want to do the eggs now before we do alcohol? You want to do alcohol or eggs? Alcohol, eggs, alcohol, eggs. Up to you. Alcohol, eggs. 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 Okay. Uh, so let's set, up the, let's set up the eggs. You want to talk about... Uh, we're going to show you like a, another molecule before we get into alcohol, which apparently isn't one of the fundamental food molecules that we're supposed to be talking about in this lecture series, to much to my chagrin. Uh, we, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, proteins. And this is an extremely, uh, we, we've, how many times have we done this demo? Like eight billion, million, jillion times. And it turns out that, um, it turns out that eggs are actually a better thermometer than most any other thermometer you have in your kitchen. And I can almost calibrate someone's cooking equipment based on how an egg behaves in them. And the reason is, is that um, there's a bunch of different proteins in different parts of the eggs, and they all have relatively um, uh, repeatable points at which they start coagulating. So let's do it. This is a, called an immersion circulator. If you don't have one, go buy one. They're only like, they're only like 35 cents now, right? Didn't the price just dro drop again? They're like, they're under 500 now. <laughs> they're under 500. We, I mean, uh, come on, I mean, but whatever. 
they're, they're, they're in the realm of reasonable now. A 500 is reasonable for a piece of kitchen equipment that you can, you know, cook, you know, 10 steaks for all of, all of your buddies and each steak is going to be perfect. You know, by the, by the time you've ruined the third steak, you've almost paid for the freaking uh, uh, circulator. Help me. Uh, and this is something that has been in labs for decades, but only made it to the kitchen, what, five years ago? Six, seven eight, years ago? Eight now, eight, yeah. nine. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. So yeah. cooking is essentially temperature, right? Ingredients and, and heat. And until this came along to the kitchen, we, we never had as cooks precise control over the temperature of the foods we were cooking. This is, a, this is what this gives you. It allows you to cook at 60 degrees, uh, that's 140 Fahrenheit, or 61, 62, 63. And what, what that meant was that cooks four or five years ago discovered, uh, like a new star, aspects of eggs that people had never seen before but because there was no way to be uh, uh, consistent about the temperatures that you cooked at and the, the textures that you got. So what we're going to see here are things that cooks didn't know about until just a few years ago. Okay. So uh, I kind of like, I semi-apologize that this is going to be in Celsius, but not really. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, if you're going to do any science, you kind of have to know Celsius. Uh, so you should learn some Celsius, right? <laughs> learn some Celsius. Um, I think, you know, it's okay for you to dress for the weather based on Fahrenheit. <laughs> because kind of that's the way God wants you to do it, but, you know. Uh, technical cooking is done in Celsius. Apologize. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll clear this thing. Yeah. So, 57 degrees Celsius is about 135 degrees Fahrenheit. This is a medium-rare steak, right? But it's a, a raw egg. So, at uh, 57 degrees, uh, you're not really cooking your egg out. Um, you can pasteurize at that temperature, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, one of the biggest lies that's told to you uh, time and time again is that uh, you need to cook foods to 140 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, 60 degrees Celsius, in order to pasteurize them, as though bacteria had some uh, on-off switch and instantly died as soon as they hit 60 degrees Celsius. Uh, uh, which is 140, which is false. So you can pasteurize an egg very easily at 57. It doesn't even take that long. Uh, and serve it to a pregnant lady. And I've done this many, 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 many times. Um, <laughs> now, um, the, uh, the, the white is, is not set. And it would actually thicken if I cooked it a little longer at 57. It would look a little bit thicker, but not much. And the yolk, of course, is runny because the yolk sets after the white. Okay. Uh, at 60, you have a barely set egg white, but it's disgusting. I would never serve it. It's, uh, it's kind of a ghostly, a ghostly, it's just, it's kind of hideous. It looks uh, horrible, uh, but uh, there it is, 60. So only three degrees higher in Celsius world, and you have set the first set of proteins in an egg white, which is which one? Do you remember? Uh, it's ovotransferrin, I think, is the first to go. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, now... Only two degrees higher than that at 62, right? Uh, this, is, this is the money one. This is where 90% of your eggs are going to cook, right? This is the one that changed everyone's life in the, uh, in the restaurant world who does this. This, and by the way, you, you clear away the thin stuff 
uh, when you're serving, so you wouldn't serve the thin stuff. Uh, this is the 62 degree egg. This is the perfect Benedict egg, right? The, the white is what's called custardy, right? So it's still, it's nice, it's set. The thin white acts as a release agent so that you can get it out of the shell. You get a perfect egg every time. Here's, and for those of you that don't do this for a living, it's, uh, yes, when I cook three at home uh, for dinner for myself when my wife's away, yes, I cook them traditionally. However, if I have to cook 60 or 70 of them, uh, I cook them in the circulator, and I cook them for an hour at 62, and I keep them in the circulator. I lower the temperature to 57 so that they don't change over time. And every single one of them is going to have a creamy yolk like that and be warm in the center and be perfect. This is a revelation from a cook standpoint. And a cook, like a scientist or an engineer, thrives on consistency and the ability to reproduce every day what they do. And this is the ultimate reproducible, perfectly safe, uh, all bacteria, vegetative cells, that is, killed, served to a pregnant lady, always hot in the center, never cold and never solid egg. Boom. Uh, if you were to put sauce over this, some people don't like the look of it because it doesn't look overcooked and people, like, they have a craving overcooked. And you can like put it through hot water to make it look overcooked at the very end or you could put a sauce over it, which is what most people do in a Benedict and then no one ever knows, no one ever complains. So this is, uh, that's 62. That's like 90% of your, of your eggs. A one degree higher at 63, Right, and I'm cracking two just to show you how consistent everything is. One degree higher, the egg yolks take on an entirely different aspect. They're creamy. Look at these. And this is a texture. The, the way you get this texture uh, it traditionally is just to not cook your egg, uh, egg yolks properly or not cook them at all. And that's why if you're pregnant or two, you can't eat these, right? Whereas th this, totally fine. This is a texture unachievable through conventional means. I don't care what people say. I've never seen someone achieve a texture all the way through an egg yolk like that by conventional means. And that's only one degree. Only one degree higher than that, you have the first fully set yolk at 64. At 64, uh, cat, set. Creamy, but set. This is only one degree, and this is, right, correct me if I'm wrong, it's different proteins setting over time, yes? Yep. yep. Yes? 65, we'll run through them real quick. We'll run through them real quick. 65 is the first Play-Doh egg yolk, where you can start, uh, you have like a malleable egg yolk, right? The real money Play-Doh one is about 66, right? Where you can like make like little marzipan bunnies out of like egg yolks and whatnot and roll it. <laughs> one degree higher than that, however, and you start taking on the granular texture of a, of, of a cooked egg. Now, uh, you can't, it doesn't have a bad smell, but you s notice how this is holding its shape in my hands better and it's not molding. And if you were to, can you see it? I don't know if you can see it. If you actually uh, push on it, instead of bending all the way down, it will rupture. You see that? See, and if I pull it apart, you see how it started to take on the granular texture of a cooked egg yolk, right? It's just one degree. Uh, and a couple degrees higher at 70 and you're in cooked, you're in cooked yolk, cooked egg land, right? Boom. Uh, although still not sulfury, sorry about your computer. Uh, still not sulfury, still not uh, uh, whatever. A, a, a couple more egg tricks. You, you're gonna do the pedon one, right? You can do that in a second. Uh, eggs are really cool. <laughs> I, we don't have that much time to talk to you about eggs, but do, can you guess the difference between uh, these two? Can you see? Can you see? You know the yeah. This one's already peeled, right? Uh, yeah, it's brown uh, because of a, a technique that uh, we started doing based on uh, Harold's book on food and cooking, where he talks about uh, something called a hameen egg, which is, uh, why don't you talk about it real quick, the hameen egg? 
Okay, uh, it was a uh, component of casseroles cooked in the Middle East uh, over the Sabbath. So you would um, bake bread and then in the dying oven, put in a casserole and let it sit for 12 hours and then have it the following day when you weren't, uh, weren't allowed to do uh, uh, active cooking. So the egg would be exposed to moderate to low temperatures for a very long time, and they ended up with qualities that you just don't get in ordinary egg cooking. Yeah, so while well, you talked about Maillard, I was busy cutting. Uh, I didn't, but... Yeah, but uh, eggs, are, eggs are one of the only alkaline things that we eat a lot of, right? Egg whites are one of the only alkaline things that we... And it turns out that uh, when you make something more alkaline, you, you um, accelerate Maillard reactions at lower temperatures. That's why you dip pretzels in things that are alkaline. That's why pretzels are so dark. And that's why pretzels have, if you think about it, a little bit of a soapy basic taste to them, which is why they're so delicious. Uh, egg whites are somewhat alkaline as well. Uh, and if you... Um, if you cook them for a long time, I mean, they go brown and they get a nutty kind of a, a bready, biscuity kind of a, and so uh, Nils and I back at the French culinary were like, why don't we just pressure cook those things? And so we started pressure cooking uh, eggs, whole eggs for like an hour and we were getting results like this where the egg yolk smells like chicken livers and this smells like kind of a, a toasty bread and we started using these for um, various different dishes and you can cook the eggs to different, different brownnesses based on how long you cook them. So you just put them in the, in the, in the pressure cooker whole uh, without uh, covering it, let it come up to boil, and then cook it for like an hour, let the temperature come down naturally, and, and there, there you have it, right? So there's another miracle thing from uh, eggs, right? If you, if you mess with eggs even further, you show them the thing or no? Like just like egg, egg action? Yeah, yeah, this is, uh, I don't know if we can get a close-up of this, I hope so. Uh, these are Chinese century eggs or thousand-year eggs or uh, pidan is the, the Chinese name. So they're uh, really brown, but they're also translucent. Uh, it's like an aspic, and it's because these are, these are not cooked. They're actually cured, but they're cured in very alkaline conditions. And that uh, completely changes the sorts of chemical reactions that take place. And I'll try to hold it so you can see at the top there a pattern, kind of white marks. Uh, what what uh, is especially valued in pidan eggs is what are called pine blossoms. And these, these are actually kind of crystalline, dendritic sorts of uh, patterns that appear on the surface that have to do with the breakdown products of the, uh, the alkaline curing of the proteins. And the more of those um, uh, pine blossom patterns that you can get on an egg, the more auspicious the egg is. Let me try to break it and see if you can see through it. It has a very uh, uh, rubbery kind of texture. And can you see that it's, yeah, translucent? It, it, um, the first smell you get is ammonia, <laughs> followed by hydrogen sulfide or something like that. Sell it. Uh, <laughs> let, let me, uh, oh, this is a pretty liquid yolk. Sometimes they have a beautiful kind of layered pattern on the inside. The yolks are, uh, to put it most kindly, jade colored. Uh, <laughs> Others might call it kind of grayish, greenish, blackish. 
uh, but they're a really interesting version of the egg. And what, what you do is you, you cut them into quarters or eighths or something like that, let them air out for a while, and then serve them with a salad or something like that, and they're, they're really wonderful. So just bang, bang through it. Uh, the reason we're showing you this is just like the kind of the, the level of thought that you can put or the level of like, cool stuff you can do with just an egg and almost nothing else, right? Uh, you can do your own. Do you have the picture of the lie egg? or no? Oh, this is the egg. So this is another thing. Yeah. This is a, a recipe uh, um, developed a while ago where you take egg yolks you, and you just you add some baking powder to them and you steam them. And they puff up and the protein sets and dries out and they become just like a, a bread. And if I believed in the Atkins diet, right, if I didn't think it was a, a horrible thing to, uh, you know, put anyone through these weird kind of diets, no offense if you, like, make money off the Atkins diet, but then I could make money off of this kind of a thing because it, it has the texture of bread and it's composed entirely of egg yolks um, with a little baking, uh, with a little baking um, powder. Um, and that's, there's stuff on the screen. And oh. Uh, right there? Oh, yeah. yeah. So, I, you know, we did a dish, uh, Nils and I, back at the French Culinary called egg on egg on egg on egg on egg on egg. We kept on trying to add different levels of egg. So we would do the egg toast, and then I would put sieved egg white on it. Then I would put pressure-cooked sieved yolk and white on it. Then we would add caviar to it, another egg. Then we would add hollandaise sauce, another egg. Finally, we then French toasted the, uh, this egg toast toast. And so we had like an absurd, we had like a, like a ridiculous like egg level on it. And if we'd had time, I don't know why I thought we could. I was going to then add the pedon egg to it to have it just like another like <laughs> egg. Uh, and I, I think I can probably get up to six or seven uh, egg units and have it just be egg. But uh, the most I've ever served a group of people, I think, is five, five eggs. But I think I can do six or seven and have it be, de have it be delicious. It's always a question of can, you, can it be delicious? It needs to be delicious. Anyway. Um, and uh, quickly on that subject, uh, so the, the, the uh, pidan, the, the really extreme uh, Chinese egg, inspired us to try to see if you could do a milder version. And um, uh, this isn't a, a great picture of it, but it turns out that you can make uh, eggs that are translucent but not brown and that don't smell like ammonia and hydrogen sulfide just by adjusting the curing conditions and making it shorter and doing a little bit of cooking as well as, as curing. So that's a picture of uh, not, not our best version of that egg held up to the light so you can see that the yolk is at the bottom and the white is semi-transparent. Uh, by the way, back, back to this for a second just to prove that I know what I'm talking about. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, and, and other chefs have done some crazy stuff. Wiley uses meat glue, which is transglutaminase, to, uh, and gelatin to cross-link egg to make egg noodles that he can then bend and fry and whatnot. So there's just, there's this, and you can see it's, it's, coming out, it's coming out clear. It's all bueno. Um, the, uh, there's like a myriad of different things you can do just with uh, simple ingredients like eggs. And we haven't even touched on foams of eggs or uh, any sort of zabayons, like also foam, I guess. But like, in other words, like, uh, you could spend a good chunk of your life just thinking about stuff to do with eggs and, and, and have reasons to get out of bed in the morning. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and that's kind of, uh, you know, anyway. So that, that, that's that. So you want to you tear through, like real quick, tear through some alcohol, real quick? Yeah. It's bang? Yeah. Okay, I can't serve it to you, but I, we'll, we'll do some interesting alcohol-related uh, alcohol uh, stuff. Uh, Daniel, is this rocking and rolling? Okay, uh, 
here's, here's something that, uh, unless you are a science freak, uh, you probably haven't thought of. Here is, uh, whoa, here is uh, 500 milliliters of uh, water and 500 uh, milliliters of uh, pure ethanol. They've both been sitting here. Uh, these aren't food grade, so please don't come up and nip on these afterwards. All right, they've both been sitting here long enough to equilibrate. They're both at the same temperature, okay? Just believe it. I don't want to hear anything. Uh, yeah. Um, okay, so we're going to let it settle out there, right? Yeah, okay. And the only reason it's jumping so much is because this thing auto-corrects. Like, this is like a tenth of a degree. Just wait, okay? Now, uh, what's going to happen when I add the alcohol to it? It, 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 right, you think it could go either way. It gets hotter. Isn't that weird? Like it gets like, and not like a small amount. Right? Weird. <laughs> right? It, it turns out there's a thing called heat of mixing. Who knew? Right? Uh, I don't really understand it. Why does that happen? It just happens. Look at that. Yeah. That's the scientific explanation. It just happens. Uh, here's, here's a, if we let it sit and do, do its thing, you, you'll also notice, uh, it's, it's hard to tell, it's not mixed, I don't know whether, it's also hard to tell whether these graduates are graduating exactly the same thing, but alcohol and water mixed together also contract, right? Because uh, alcohol and, and, and water are different sizes, so they can actually pack more efficiently together than, uh, than they can on, on their own. And so uh, they shrink when you add them together, which is it's a, strange, a strange business. Uh, here's, another, here's another piece of strange business. I think it's a very strange business indeed. What happened? Oh, the volume of the thermometer. Chumps, we're chumps. Um, okay, so this here is ice at zero degrees Celsius, right? And this is, uh, this is ethanol and water, right? So when I add this, what temperature do you think it's going to get to? Guess, I don't even, right, wrong, doesn't matter. What temperature is it gonna get to? What? You think it's gonna hit zero? You think it's going to go below zero? <laughs> Boom, below zero. <laughs> All right. Now, why? Why is it going below zero? Because what? Ah! Ah, ah, okay, freezing point depression. Sure, right, the freezing point is depressed. That explains how it can go below zero. Now tell me why it goes below zero. Because heat is used to melt the ice. And where is it coming from? Right, because it's not coming from the outside system. And the reason that it is favored for it to melt and to get colder and to put the extra energy, even though there's no heat coming in or out of this, is due to your friend entropy, right? It's like a weird entropy effect, right? Uh, which is still like the one thing that I'll never, I'll never, uh, I'll, it'll, it'll never, entropy will never sit right with me. I don't care how many books I read on the subject. <laughs> it just never sits right with me, ever. Uh, but it's... Yeah, it's so weird, and like that's the thing, we're all taught that it's freezing point depression that does it, 
but that doesn't really, it never tells you why it actually gets physically colder. And it's because it, energy is required to melt, heat is required to melt that ice. And it, it's not coming from the outside, so it's got, there has to be an entropy effect going on. So you get to, you get to ponder the uh, heat death of the universe in every cocktail that you make. Um, <laughs> now, uh, do, we have time for do we have time for carbonation and the other thing, or just the one thing? Carbonation and the thing, or just one thing? One thing? All right. So you, uh, I wish I could carbonate because Daniel pulled out his awesome carbonation rig. But I'm going to do a quick drink that we actually do at the bar that uses a technique that I like that's very easy to demonstrate. So I'll just do that. Um, so when you muddle a drink, um, when you muddle a drink, you muddle uh, an herb, usually in something like sugar or a small amount of liquid. And the reason you don't do it in a lot of liquid is because you need to get a good amount of force on that leaf to break it up and get the flavors out of it. Problem is, see how this is turning black and crappy? Right? The reason it's turning black and crappy is because, well actually you're the, you're the, you're the expert on the enzymes of turning black and crappy. You wrote a whole <laughs> chapter on it. You wanna explain the enzymes while I get this drink going or no? Uh, and the sure. oxidation crap, yeah. whatnot? Yeah. yeah. So there are, there are enzymes called uh, polyphenol oxidases that are uh, defensive in nature. So when the, when the plant senses that uh, it's being damaged in some way, and that's usually by cells actually being ruptured, then these enzymes go to work and generate compounds that help limit the damage. And uh, the, the byproducts of those reactions are um, these black uh, pigments and uh, off flavors. It just doesn't smell so good. Turns out, if you use liquid nitrogen, <laughs> which is clocking in at about minus 196 uh, Celsius, uh, that the enzymes don't operate so well. <laughs> of course, I added a little much. Let me let me let that let that settle down. So this technique is you freeze the herbs, you fracture them in liquid nitrogen, and then before they can thaw, you melt them into high-proof liquor. High-proof liquor also doesn't allow the enzymes to uh, work properly. Okay? Then you add lime juice or lemon juice or something with ascorbic acid in it, which further inhibits those enzymes from working. Then you shake it and you get a nice bright green drink. Boom. You can also, by the way, uh, do it in a blender just with straight ethanol and no liquid nitrogen. But the uh, whirring effect of the blades uh, induces enough of a flavor change for us to do it this way at the bar. We think it's superior. But you can get about 90% of the way there uh, just using uh, a blender. So I'm gonna make that drink in one second, but since I put too much liquid nitrogen into it, I'm gonna let it sit for a second, and, and on, on your way out, I'm gonna make this drink, on your way out, or when you're asking questions, when I, I'm gonna make you some ice cream, and this is an interesting ice cream, with, uh, and it, I make a bunch of different variants of it, and the concept of it is to use, um, to use uh, oak as, uh, as a, a, a stand-in for a vanilla flavor in an ice cream. Boom, got it. Okay, so uh, oak, if you were to take um, 
maker's mark, which is what we did, and you were to boil uh, a full liter of it or more, such that it went down to 250 milliliters, you'd have something that looks like that and tastes god-awful. Tastes like you're sucking on tree bark. It's horrible. Add milk to it, and uh, you want to explain the tannins binding with the milk? I can't explain that. <laughs> Well, yeah, the, the, the tannins, in the, uh, which are what give the astringency, um, are astringent in our mouths because they bond to uh, proteins in our mouths and make little clumps which make for a kind of rough texture on the surfaces of the tongue and the, the palate. And that's why um, uh, astringent wines and tea, black tea, have that kind of drying quality on the mouth. The way you can avoid that in a drink like this is to mix the tannin-rich uh, extract that Dave has made with milk, which has a lot of protein in it, and then the tannins bind to the milk proteins so that when you put it in your mouth, they're already occupied. They don't bother your tongue. So you want to start making the liquid nitrogen, I'll start making the drink? Or uh, you want to make the drink and I'll make the... You want to here? We have I'll need nitrogen. instruction for either one. All right. So when you're making liquid nitrogen ice cream, it's a good idea to get a uh, blender, a mixer rather, with a rubber spatula on the side of the paddle to keep it from scraping. And it's also a good idea to have liquid nitrogen. All right. Is some. You don't need. Oh, yeah. Use a paddle, not a whisk. Because the liquid nitrogen, okay, when you're making ice cream, you're doing two things simultaneously. You're freezing it, right, and you're aerating it at the same time. Because if you just froze it solid, it would be a solid block. This would suck. So what you're doing is aerating and freezing it at the same, uh, aerating and freezing it. Liquid nitrogen, by virtue of its violent boiling, does the aeration for you. So you don't need to whip it with a balloon whisk. In fact, if you do, you over whip it and, and it turns to crap. So while he's doing that, I'm going to make this beverage, cool, refreshing beverage. We should clap. Thank you. I mean, you know. Lots? Okay. I mean, we don't. I mean, this is sort of a sight to behold. I mean, actually, Dave, you know, given all of these wonderful pieces of advice and, you know, ways that home cooks can cook, I was curious about whether or not you solved how to get liquid nitrogen into the home. Okay, 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 okay. How many of you, okay, how many of you live in houses with yards? Call up the welding shop. <laughs> Tell them I would like my 180 liter doer of liquid nitrogen delivered to whatever your address happens to be. Uh, you pay the deposit, and that's it. It shows up. <laughs> Go to cookingissues.com, my blog, and read not just me, but read a host of other people on the safety issues involved with liquid nitrogen before you do so. But it's pretty much as simple as that. Whatever you do, oh, we added it's, too much. I added about, too much. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, wait a minute. Uh, so, um, uh, whatever you do, do not pay all of the money for the hose that they want to sell you to get the liquid nitrogen out. It is a ripoff. It's a ripoff. You can build that hose for like, you can build a better hose. It doesn't waste as much liquid nitrogen for like 15 bucks. You know what I mean? It's like no contest. So there you go. You heard it here first. So okay, so I guess I'd like to propose, um, it's a little bit late on time and Harold has a book signing outside, I believe. Ah, okay. That's what I was told, is that true? <laughs> 
You have a book signing, so we don't want to miss you. You shouldn't miss your book signing. No. And also, there's scraps of food left over here that I'm sure people are interested well, in. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't know if anyone's interested in that. <laughs> but, but there was a question. Did you have a question? There's a microphone. Hold it. If you, if you just say it without a microphone, it apparently doesn't yeah, work. It was about to, to come well, out. Well, one of the things that I have been kind of playing with recently is Szechuan buttons, which I'm sure you're familiar with since you have a bar. Um, and I wanted to try to incorporate, since you know it's that chewing that kind of activates the, the uh, release of the, I guess, the active components in Szechuan buttons, I wanted to incorporate it into like a chewing gum. And the problem that I'm having is dilution. You know, I, I try to extract it, and I've tried a bunch of different things. I, you know, I rotovapped it, and, and I tried does to make it. Rotovap? Does, huh? does this stuff in Szechuan buttons rotovap? So, it, no. I, yeah, it does. <laughs> no, wow. I don't know. It's volatile. It is? Hmm? The stuff that may, may, takes like a battery on your tongue Central is volatile? is volatile? I mean, I have pictures to prove it. Wow. <laughs> oh, there's an, there's an interesting fact about, before we get into an argument about this, because this could get ugly. There's an interesting fact about rotovaps, and uh, Professor, you touched on it earlier, and you weren't here, so sorry. But like uh, a student was uh, rotovapping uh, peanuts to get the uh, proteins out. Is that a standard rotovap setup? And, it, and actually, this has been tested in commercial uh, distilleries all the time. There is crosstalk between the two sides, the distillation side and the, um, the, the distillation side and the, and the uh, what the heck, condensing side, because you get bumping and spitting, and so you actually do get some contamination through from one side to the other. And so the way to determine whether you're actually distilling it is to put two layers of uh, stainless or ceramic frit in between your distillation flask and your condenser. So, so I think this is a fascinating line of questioning, and I would encourage you to come up afterwards <laughs> and to interrogate Dave some more, I'm sure. But, but, but I just want to make sure, I, I don't want to stop this, but there are more general questions we should, we should go Brilliant. on. I'm, I'm actually, I'm sure that someone here is very interested. Harold, are you going to let people eat your century egg? Um. If they like, I mean, if sure. anyone wants to, afterwards sure. you can come up. So we have one more question. Sorry to stop this, but we just Turns don't have that much time. Turns out I misjudged the uh, volume. Um, this is the last question. Yeah. <laughs> says not to refrigerate the eggs for about three weeks. If I get fresh eggs from his chickens, he says don't refrigerate the eggs. So what happens when you refrigerate eggs and the difference between supermarket eggs or fresh eggs? What, what's going on in the refrigerator? Well, uh, yeah, it's... That's good advice if you want to, um, if you want to hard boil eggs and make them peel easily, because freshly laid eggs don't. And what happens is that as, as the eggs sit, the, uh, the pH of the white goes up, they become more alkaline, and then they don't stick as much to the shell membrane, which is what makes peeling so difficult. So uh, it's true that that aging process, the, the increase in peelability, goes a lot faster at room temperature than it does in, in a refrigerator. That's why you put things in the refrigerator is to keep them fresh, not aged. Um, but that's not a great idea if you have any concern at all about salmonella, because they do a lot better at room temperature too. So it depends on which is more important. So I guess I'd like to propose with that we should all clap one more time. Um, so. <laughs> Thank you. I Me mean, too. Th there is a book signing outside. This does seem to be an unusual opportunity to sample various pieces of cuisine. Mm. Daniel, um, I made a mess. And, um, and next week, I'm um, Joanne and Jordi Roca.
please come back. We'll have fun.